Welcome to Belief Beat, where we talk about things that matter with people who matter. I'm this week's host, John Horner Eibler, uh, on this podcast shared with you by uh, the people of Unity Lutheran Church in Brookfield, Wisconsin. So it's really an honor and timely that we get to talk this week with our particular guest. Her name is Sally Sudo, and she, for those of you who are connected to Unity, is the aunt of one of the people who's worked on our staff in a variety of capacities over the years, Ann Hill. And uh, Sally's life experience includes uh, being uh, Japanese, uh, Japanese-American, and experiencing uh, the Japanese internment camps on the west coast of the United States during World War II. And uh, that's effect on her and her family's life then, and how that has played out uh, in the decades since. Um, that's important uh, in any uh, circumstance, but in uh, uh, recent times we've heard how uh, significantly violence against Asian Americans has increased in our country, almost doubling uh, just in the past year. And, and so perhaps many of the things that um, led up to and resulted in the internment camps of the 1940s are playing out again in our society today, all the more reason for us to know the history and to talk to someone who's actually uh, lived then and now. Sally, um, it's so good to welcome you today. Thanks for being a part of Belief Beat. Well, thank you very much for having me today. My name is Sally Sudo, and I'm a retired teacher from the Minneapolis Public Schools. I am also a survivor of an American concentration camp. And because of what is happening to Asian Americans today with a rise in hate crimes, uh, I'm glad, Pastor, that you decided to include a talk of this type. Absolutely. Uh, I, uh, one of the things that will be posted on our website as a part of this uh, podcast and links on like our Facebook page is uh, something, and I don't know if I'm going to say this correctly, but it's the Denshow uh, digital repository, so collections of the stories of people who lived through the, the concentration camps. And uh, Sally recorded one of those, and we'll put the link to that up as well. And I think uh, that will give you uh, a, a much broader perspective on her whole life story, maybe more so than we have time for in this particular conversation. So I'd really encourage you to listen to that. Sally is eminently listenable to, I don't know if that's correct English, but uh, she's an easy person to listen to. And it was just fascinating to me to hear your life story. But let's, let's uh, at least get at a few of those pieces while we talk here today. Uh, let's start with your earliest memory, Sally. Sally, you grew up in a Japanese speaking part of Seattle. What do you remember from those earliest days? Yes, our family actually lived in a section of town that at that time was called Nihonmachi, which means Japantown. And if you've been to Seattle, it's the international district today. So not too far from the downtown area. Uh, this is where most of the Japanese families in Seattle lived, not necessarily by choice, but because um, there were no fair housing laws back in those days. And many of the neighborhoods would not even allow us to rent, let alone own a home in their neighborhood. You know, it's like one of those, not my backyard kind of attitudes. So 
living in a segregated neighborhood did have its advantages, especially for my parents who never became fluent in the language because they could do everything they needed to do for daily life in their own Japanese language. Um, one of my fondest memories as a child was that my older sister Amy, every Saturday would take us uh, to the Seattle Public Library. Uh, she was 12 years older than I am and she took the three youngest of us girls and then we were each given five cents to buy an ice cream cone to eat on the way home. And we did this week after week. And it was, you know, quite a walk to the library. Maybe it could have been about a mile away, but we walked there and back. And those memories stay with me. Uh, I know that our neighborhood had uh, not only Japanese, but there were some German families and Italian families living there as well. Uh, our family never owned our home. We always rented it uh, because my father's job was one where we were pretty much living paycheck to paycheck. And he was a cook and your mom was busy at home raising the family. Yes. In fact, 10 children, you know, so oh, I'm next to, next to the very owner. busy. Yes. And my father did work in the um, restaurant industry all his life and was able to provide for us so even even the, during the depression days i'm sure it was a real struggle for them um, my oldest sister says she remembers times when we had to do with all the electricity because we hadn't paid the electric bill but i i, I don't have memories like that because uh, i came along later right now, do I remember correctly that your, your father entered the United States in 1899? That's correct. Okay. Yeah. So now let's fast forward just a little bit to uh, December 7th, 1941. You tell in the, in the Densho Repository, you tell the story of your uh, older brother Tom being at the movies that day. What was that day like? Yes, well, if you remember, it was a Sunday. So naturally, um, the rest of us were in church <laughs> at the local Seattle Baptist Church. And Tom was one of those uh, children that, you know, give your parents gray hairs. Okay. Uh, always being a, you know, doing things contrary to what your parents wished. So he had snuck off to the movies. And he remembers that they were showing this film called the Maltese Falcon with Humphrey Bogart. Ah. And then he said, all of a sudden, the scrawl came across the screen saying, all military personnel, report to your bases immediately. And people started looking around, you know, what was going on. And after the film was ended, the manager came up and he said, we've learned that Japan has bombed Pearl Harbor. So uh, please go back to your homes quietly. And Tom said, as soon as he got out into the lobby, uh, he, people started looking at him and pointing at him saying, oh, there's a Jap, Let, there's a Jap, let's get him. And so a gang started to, you know, chase after him. But fortunately, he outran them and got home without being hurt. But we used to say, well, you see, that's what you get for not being in church. <laughs> 
<laughs> Thank, thanks for thanks for helping us out with our attendance patterns here a little bit in the <laughs> middle of everything. So like, oh my! So um, that happens on December seventh, nineteen forty-one. Tell us uh, about the next couple of months and kind of the growing awareness that the internment or concentration camps might be in your future. We should also note, and maybe you want to mention that, you know, you, you mentioned that there were Italian and German families in the same locale um, who did not uh, experience uh, concentration camps uh, the way Japanese citizens did. So maybe just talk about that whole period as, as much as you can remember it uh, in the months after the war started. Well, uh, within days of Pearl Harbor, our whole community was uh, put on curfew. And it only applied to us, nobody else, just anybody who was Japanese. And the curfew meant that you had to be home by eight o'clock at night, and you couldn't leave your home until six o'clock the next morning. Now, those who had jobs that required them to be out during those times had to get a special permission from the police department. And they must have been given some kind of identification that proved they had a legitimate reason to be out. But there was one um, a Japanese American in our town who challenged that uh, curfew all the way up to the Supreme Court. And yet the Supreme Court sided with the, with the government that because we were in unusual times, the government has extraordinary powers, you know, to keep everybody safe. Mm. Uh, so the other things that happened were the FBI came through all of our homes in our neighborhoods and they took away things that they considered contraband. Now to them contraband was our cameras, our binoculars, uh, if we had any like those Japanese ceremonial swords or shortwave radios. Now, we learned that my father's cousin, who actually had a law degree from the University of, of Washington, but was unable to practice law because he was not a citizen, uh, so he became a strawberry farmer. And when the FBI went to their home, they found a dynamite in the barn. And of the only reason that he had dynamite as a farmer was because he got one of those fields that was so full of tree stumps that he used it, you know, to blast that out. But they found that suspicious. So they rounded him up and took him away. And his family did not know for months where he had been taken. And then they get a letter from Bismarck, North Dakota, where uh -oh. the Department of Justice had sent him to, at that time it was called Fort Lincoln, which was in or outside of Bismarck, North Dakota. And that's the first they learned that he was still alive. But his letter was heavily you know, redacted. So when my parents had learned about uh, Mr. Yamashita, uh, they were so afraid of uh, the FBI finding anything in our home that might lead to distrust them, you know, or consider them disloyal, that they burned all the letters that they had gotten from their Japanese relatives. Uh, they burned many Japanese artifacts. And in our neighborhood, you could see 
these um, oil drums, you know, that people use to burn their trash in, just little bonfires going around all over, uh, everybody else doing the same thing. And then uh, after the FBI raided, um, you know, I shouldn't say raided, but they did come in without uh, warrants or anything. Um, then the notice, uh, President Roosevelt then signs this executive order, which takes place six, about six weeks after Pearl Harbor on February 19th. So then signs start going up all over our neighborhood, on sides of buildings, uh, on telephone posts, uh, starting out instructions to all persons of Japanese ancestry, alien or non-alien. Now, what's a non-alien? You know, it's a citizen. That would be a citizen, right? Yeah, but the government was so clever in the kind of euphemisms they used to kind of downplay this whole thing that they were doing. So that's the way that we all got notified that we were going to be moved out of that area. That uh, just sounds so uh, traumatic. Um, so tell us about the move and and what the conditions were like in the in the camp. Yes, well, we did stay in our home until the very bitter end. Uh, we, in some cases, families were only given seven days to get all of their business affairs and personal affairs in order. Now think about that. I mean, if you are told your family has to move out in seven days, you've got everything in your household, you've got a business or your job, you've got um, you know, a lot of things that need to be taken care of. There's no way you're gonna do all that in seven days. Uh, in our case, we had a few more weeks, uh, but in the end, we had to leave a lot of things behind because the government said we could only take what we could carry. So that you know meant maybe two suitcases a piece with our clothes in it. Uh, and because all your neighbors knew that you were gonna have to leave, they wouldn't even come to your evacuation sales, you know, when you were trying to sell things like at a rummage sale. And they waited until the end and uh, basically they just took what they wanted from these homes that were gonna be abandoned. Um, our family tried to save some of our valuables uh, and the Seattle Baptist Church had opened up its basement for storage. And so they had gridded it all off and you know, assigned families a certain space. And so that's where we put some of our things. But during the war, places like that were vandalized and looted and in, our, and in some cases even burned down. Uh, so our family had nothing, you know, of our storage things left for us. So, so then we get, do you want me to go on? <laughs> or? Yes, please. I mean, it, it's, right. it's kind of hard so to first, listen to, but yeah, the first, place, the first place we get sent to is the Puyallup, Washington State Fairgrounds. Because when you think about it, there were about, oh, eight to 9,000 people of Japanese ancestry in the Seattle area. And all of a sudden now the government says we're dangerous and we need to be in prison. What kind of place would be able to accommodate us? Because the government had not built these prison camps yet. And so they put people in uh, places like the fairgrounds, livestock buildings, horse stables, you know, and um, 
we thought since it was temporary that it would only maybe be for a few weeks, but we ended up staying in these places about six or seven months. And um, of course, there was no running water in, in the buildings that we were in because in some cases uh, they also built like um, prefab temporary, you know, huts for us to, to be in. And all, the conditions were, were not good at all. As you know, it uh, rains a lot in the Seattle area and these temporary buildings were put on dirt parking lots. So whenever it rained, that dirt would turn all to mud. And then as the boards were shrinking over the summer, then all that dirt would come into your room that you're you know, living in. Tell us a little bit about when you, when you get to the permanent facility, uh, tell us about your bed and yes. the, well, you know, how you were kept in. In um, the fall was when we were told that now we were gonna be moved to our permanent home. And they put us on buses to go back to the Union Depot in Seattle. And then we were put aboard trains. We had to keep the shades down on the train. Every car had an armed guard at the front and back of, of each car. And it took us uh, overnight to get to our new location. And they didn't tell us where we were going. But when we got there, we found out that we were in the middle of the Idaho desert the south central part of Idaho. So getting off the train, then they put us aboard army trucks and trucked us the rest of the way to the campsite. Well, the prison camps were made up of all these tar paper shacks and it was divided into blocks, um, very little vegetation at all, just mainly sand and dirt and um, all of our baggage being put in one big pile and having to sort through and find your things. Yeah. So these barracks that they made for us that was supposed to be our, our home were really unfinished buildings. So each building, a, a barrack is about a 120 feet long. It was divided into six units and the interior was only, you know, the studs and the boards that the building is made from and no ceiling on the rooms. So it's open rafters. Mm -hmm. And then there's only a piece of tar paper on the outside. So there's no insulation and no drywall, none of that. And the, the climate in um, the part of Idaho we were in could get as cold as 20 degrees below zero in the winter. And then it can go up to 110 degrees in the summer. Now we came from the Seattle area, which is a much more moderate climate. And we really didn't have the clothing for this kind of weather. And the army did issue some, um, they call them pea jackets, you know, that the women then could alter uh, for people like me, you know, for the, and to try to give us some, um, warmer clothing that we needed in the winter. But overall, it was a huge disruption, of course, to our family life. Um, barbed wire, right? Yes, barbed wire. Uh, surrounding. Uh, uh, watchtowers with armed guards in it. 
always pointing their guns at us. And then at night, they would flood the area with searchlights. So very much a prison camp. I mean, absolutely. I suppose yeah. the, the word internment uh, sanitizes it a little bit, but I mean, they, you really were imprisoned. Yes. In, in fact, um, you know, I know that most people call them internment camps, but to get technical, an internment camp can only be run by the Department of Justice for immigrants. So it was not legal for the government to put people like me who was born and raised in this country in an internment camp. So our camps were actually run by a department they created called the War Relocation Authority. And the definition for a concentration camp is a guarded compound where ethnic and religious minorities are confined for political reasons. So ours was very much a concentration camp. Tell me about the, uh, so one of the things you had mentioned on the, the other set of recordings was that your father didn't get to work as a cook in the camp. I, I was just curious about your food. Was it Japanese or was part of it also that now you had to eat all American food? Well, for the first year, it was mostly canned food and all American food. Now, you know that for the Japanese, rice is a staple. And there right, was no, right. no rice. We had to petition for rice and things like soy sauce, you know, which we use a lot to flavor our cooking. Those things didn't c come to our camps until the second year. So the first year, it was all these, uh, you know, potato dishes and pork and beans, uh, Vienna sausages, spam, that type of thing. Okay. Yeah. What a, what a change. Before we kind of switch to the rest of uh, your life going forward, um, tell me a little bit in retrospect, uh, we'll eventually get to how that's walked with you for your life, but what was the impact, especially on like your parents and your oldest siblings as you watched the rest of their lives play out? Right. Uh, for my parents, it, it really was a, a devastating experience. I mean, as I said, my dad had been in this country into, from 1899, coming as a teenager, working hard all his life, you know, tried to help us have the American dream as children. And um, by the time Pearl Har Harbor happens, he's already 61 years old. Wow. So then at that stage, to lose your job and your livelihood, and be put in a prison camp. And then when he gets out, you know, he's already 64, where well, he should be thinking about retirement, right? But, I mean, we've lost everything. He can't afford to retire. Uh, so it was very difficult for him. And for my mother, in a strange way, it was almost like a little mini vacation for her mm. because she didn't have any housework to do. The meals were prepared, you know. Uh, and uh, her only big job, which was a big job, was doing laundry by hand for all 12 of us in these wash tubs. And other than that, for the first time in her life, she had free time to work on hobbies. And people uh -huh. who, who had an art uh, skill or craft skill would volunteer to teach a class on how to, how to do you know, uh, one thing or another. So, 
she took a class in flower arranging where they used crepe paper flowers and calligraphy and um, pattern drafting because the, the government did provide a room with a couple of sewing machines in it that um, she could sew clothes for us. Okay. So, you know, really your experience in camp depended on what your age was. I had two siblings that were, had graduated from high school already, hoping to go on to the university. Uh, and of course, it really, I suppose they could have gotten a job, I mean, gotten a scholarship to go on to um, higher learning. Uh, but um, at that point, my parents felt that it's better for them to stay with us and do whatever work uh, would be available for them in the camp. So the ones that were already out of school, my brother worked in the warehouse where, where the goods came in and he would sort and stock the, the warehouse. My sister, Marion, she worked helping with sort of like a preschool of younger you know, age children who were not ready for school yet. Uh, the rest of us were all in school, uh, my, except my youngest brother, he was only three at the time. Uh, I was in school, uh, first, second, and third grade in the camp. My siblings who were in high school, they were probably the most um, outraged, I would say, that the government was doing this to us because they had studied, you know, civil, uh, their civics right. classes, and they knew what the Constitution said, and they knew what was being done was wrong. But, you know, for the Japanese people, we have this phrase called shikataganai, which means it's of no use. In other words, don't try to fight this. There's nothing that can be done about it. And so people just kind of went along to get along. Well, and it, I mean, it should never have, it should never have happened. So um, maybe as we continue moving the, the story forward, your oldest siblings are the ones who apparently are able to leave first and they make their way uh, eventually to the Twin Cities area. And, and most of your family follows them there. Um, I don't What part of that uh, do you want to share with us? Yes. That's, well, that's like the, a huge part of the story, but. The reason uh, my older siblings were um, allowed to leave the camp was because the first one to leave was my brother, Joe. And he graduated from high school in the camp, the first graduating class. So it was the day after he graduates from high school, he volunteers to serve in the U.S. military. Uh, okay. You know, actually, that was a new thing because when the war started, if you were um, Japanese American, you got classified as 4C, which means enemy alien. And so it wasn't until 1943 that the government decided that they would accept volunteers that were Japanese American. So it was quite a new thing for for them expect, accepting them. And then at that time, they had kind of a secret uh, unit going on called the, it, the Military Intelligence Service. 
and they re really were looking for people who were fluent enough in Japanese to help in the war effort. You know, they would interrogate prisoners of war from Japan or translate documents and things like that. So if you volunteered to serve, the first thing the government did was give you a, a language test to see whether you qualified to be in this military intelligence service. And that's where my brother Joe ended up. So the training school for that uh, unit was here at Fort Snelling. So he ends up here in Fort Snelling. And while he is here, he decides he's gonna help some of his other brothers and sisters get out. Now, my brother Fred also volunteered to join the military, but he did not pass the physical. So when he had to go and take the physical, he was in Salt Lake City. And so he thought to himself, oh, I'm in an area that's not a military zone. I'm just gonna stay here. So he found a job at a hotel as a bellhop. And that's what he was doing. And then um, my brother said to him, you know, that job has no future. I'm gonna see if I can help you get into Dunwoody Institute. And that's what he did. He, he got my brother into Dunwoody Institute to learn a trade. And so then my brother Fred moves here. And then they sent for my sister, Amy. She was the next one out of high school. And she uh, was very good in secretarial skills. So they got her a job at Fort Snelling working for the language school as the secretary. And then my brother Tom, you know, the one that was at the movies? Mm -hmm. Well, his way of protesting, I suppose, or showing that, uh, you know, he wasn't gonna obey anybody or whatever they told him to do, he uh, refused to go to school in the camps. Uh -huh. He should have been uh, a sophomore, you know, he should, it's high school years, sophomore, junior, senior. And so, my parents know, have no idea this is going on until one day the school comes and asks why Tom's not in school. And this is a shock to them. And so um, he used to go off to another block and just sit around and play cards all day and then come home at the right time. Wow. <laughs> so, what a so plan. They, yeah. So they decide, well, we, we've got to get Tom out of the camp or his life is just going to be ruined. So they find a family around Lake Calhoun that's willing to take him in as kind of like a houseboy where he could earn his keep. And then he was, he finished his high school degree at um, West High School and then went on to college at Augsburg College. Yeah. So that's how, we, how we, we ended up with actually four people in Minnesota when the war ends. Yeah. And uh, I should note you're, you're there now as well. So one of the things that I, I have so admired about your life story, Sally, is that you have, um, you grow up in uh, kind of the segregated uh, Japanese part of Seattle. You end up in, uh, as a US citizen in a concentration camp during the war. You then end up in Minnesota where, uh, you know, not a lot of Japanese uh, floating around in the uh, Scandinavian part of the United States. And then you uh, marry and along with your husband, uh, go back to Japan, move to Japan for his job, correct? 
Yes. For what, for what you think is maybe a year or two, and it ends up being 17 years, yes. and now there too you're a little bit out of place. Uh, tell us about that. Yes. Um, the company that my husband worked for uh, was opening a branch in uh, Japan. And so they, they asked him to go. Uh, he was the um, general manager for the, for the company in Japan. Uh, he went on ahead of us. I was left behind to, you know, get the home sold and everything and wait until my children were out of school. And then we joined him. Um, actually, being uh, what I called an American in disguise in Japan, uh, kind of had its benefits as well, because, you know, wherever I went, if, if I was just sitting in the subway or in a restaurant or whatever, nobody would uh, think me as being a foreigner. Right. But as soon as, as soon as I opened my mouth, they could tell that I was not native Japanese. And so therefore, I got a lot of, um, you know, interesting uh, questions uh, people wondering, where were you educated that you can't read that sign in Japanese or things like that. Uh, uh, in a way, it, it, you know, because the, the Japanese really looked up to Americans as being on a level better than them. I suppose it was because they were defeated in the war. Huh. Yeah. yeah, that Americans in Japan, you know, did have a lot of I want to call uh, benefits, mm. you know. Uh, so, yeah. uh, and you, you taught there, correct? Yes, I did. That was after my um, youngest, or I should say my oldest two, uh, had to go to college. And it was like going abroad for college because they came back here to the States. Uh. And so then at that time, I said to my husband, you know, I'm willing to help out with some of these expenses. So... Uh, if it's okay, I'll, I'll go back to teaching. And I found a job very easily at an international school. So. Okay. So is it true to say that, like, your, your children, are they actually more fluent in Japanese than, than you are? Because they grew up there, or how did that work out? Yeah, well, I have, I have three boys. Uh, the youngest one is the most fluent in the language because he was born there. Okay. I sent him to a Japanese kindergarten. And um, I, then from first grade, I sent him to an international school. But um, he liked it so much that when he graduated from college uh, at Northwestern University, he told me he wanted to go to Japan to work. And I said to him, well, if you can get a job there, you may, because there's no way I can support you in Japan. The cost of living is very high. So he did find a job there, and he's living and working there today, uh, has a Japanese wife. Oh. Yeah, very, very happy. I think he feels he fits in to their society. Uh, fascinating. I, I skipped over a little bit on, on the progression. Can Because now we're, I, I want to ultimately get us to nowadays a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your search for an apartment in Minneapolis in roughly 1958. Yes, that was when we um, got married. We were looking for an apartment beforehand. And I would answer these. First, I would call on the phone the different you know places that were advertising vacancies. And every one of them always said, oh, yes, we have a vacancy. So I would show up 
in person and all of a sudden, oh, I'm so sorry, you know, this apartment's been filled. Or, and this happened time and time again. And so then uh, one of my brothers said, I think there's something fishy going on here. So yeah. I called one of the numbers back and oh yes, we have a vacancy, you know, someone who had just turned me away. Because <laughs> yep. on the phone, they can't tell what uh, nationality I am. You know, I sound like an American. And nope. so uh, then when I went back and my brother went with me and this was a, an apartment building and the woman who uh, ran the building, she said to us, well, you know, my son is a lawyer and it isn't so much that we don't want you, but we don't know how the other tenants will feel. So I'm sorry, but uh, we cannot rent the apartment to you. And my brother said to her, you know that my sister is a teacher in the Minneapolis schools. What is she supposed to teach those students about democracy and, you know, everyone being equal? <laughs> so. And, and how, so how did you finally get an apartment? Yeah. So then to solve the problem, we decided that it was best for us to put in our own ad. So we ran an ad saying, Japanese American couple, couple looking for a uh, two bedroom apartment. Or, and then we waited for the calls to come to us. And then we were able to rent uh, the upper half of a duplex. Okay. And yeah. was it in a, in a sense, Anglo neighborhood or? Yeah, or uh -huh, it... very much, yeah, uh, mixed neighborhood. Someone yeah. actually did open yeah. their doors. <laughs> Yeah, but this is like 13 years after the war is over, you right, know? Right, right. Yeah. Um, so we are now living in this time of um, dramatically increased violence against Asian Americans. Um, we talked a little bit when we met, you know, last week about uh, what's the significance even of that term? Uh, you know, we who come from Europe are really specific about what country, what dialect. Right. And, and then we take a entire continent and just reduce it as if it's one language and, and one people. Um, but what do, you, what do you see now in our society that you saw uh, through your much younger eyes, you know, as a kid and then growing up, that, that is in a sense kind of sadly familiar yeah. as far as prejudice and, and um, uh, right. everything that goes with it. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the commonalities are that uh, people are living in a time of fear. You know, they're fear fearing the pandemic. In our time, they were fearing what was going to happen to them during World War II. So there is that kind of hysteria going on. And whenever there is fear of the unknown, I think people start looking for a scapegoat, you know, in our case, they, they thought, well, since Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, then all the Japanese must be to blame for that action. You know, it was hard for them to separate Japanese Americans from the, the Japanese that lived in Japan. They kind of lumped us all together as one and the same. Uh, because there again, I think it was because they didn't know us personally as people. Living in a segregated neighborhood, you know, you really don't right. get to know, you know, a mixture of people. 
so in this case today, I think also people are looking for somebody to blame for this virus. And because it supposedly started in uh, China, you know, now they're going to lump all the Asian looking people together and start um, acting, you know, uh, against them. Usually it starts with, you know, verbal assaults. And I'd be surprised if there, if I could meet any Asian person in America that has not been verbally assaulted. We've all lived through that. But now when it starts getting really physical, you know, with people getting pushed down and slashed with box cutters, I mean, that is just beyond the pale. Yeah. And, I, you know, I just think it's uh, the mentality that people generalize too much. They, they don't think about the separate individual. And so that, that's what's happening. Yeah. One of the things we teach our, in our confirmation classes is that uh, Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, uh, includes the line that there arose in Egypt a pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And one of the things we talk about with them is how, how did the Jewish people go from kind of being the heroes who save Egypt in the time of famine to becoming slaves. And that verse, that one little verse is so insightful because the, the new Pharaoh just didn't know the Jewish people, had no mm. familiarity with them. And I, I think so much of prejudice is, is that's where it comes from. We, we literally exactly. don't know each other. Right. In a personal way. Another thing that seems to be particularly the case with uh, prejudices towards Asian Americans, for lack of a better word at the moment, uh, is there seems to be also be this double standard of of, uh, uh, you're all such uh, high achievers. And and that in itself, I think, puts you in a box. Mm-hmm. that um, is unfair. I, I, I don't know if you want to comment on that or just uh, how, I'm, uh, how help me with, um, with a better way of referring to people who come from Asia. I mean, I mean, I presume it's just a matter of getting to know each person and what country they're from. Yes, yes, that's true, right. And until then, you probably just you know, know that they belong to the Asian category rather yeah. than the, you know, the Caucasian or what have you. Um, right. Yes. Well, you know, I think that one of the things uh, that uh, was put upon us was being called the model minority, which was used uh, kind of to argue against us having to uh, fight for affirmative action, right? Ah, okay. And Yet, when, uh, when you lump people in a, in a group like that, I mean, I heard the other day that the disparity between the highest earning Asians and the lo- lowest that are still in pov- poverty is the largest of any ethnic group. Uh, and I guess when I think about it, you know, you think about all these Asians that are in high-tech industries. Right or that have started a business you know, in a high-tech high industry, which makes them super, super wealthy. So I could see that. And, and yet, you know, there are still many, especially in our state, the Hmong people 
who are struggling, you know, with putting food on the table. Mm -hmm. So there is that big disparity. And then besides that, when they call us a model minority, they are really invalidating other minority groups and almost like pitting us against the black Americans. You know, it's like, well, why can't you do what they're doing and improve your life, you know, make yeah. yourself yeah. a better life. Yeah. And yeah, circumstances are entirely different. I mean, we came here by choice. They were forced to come here uh, for their labor. So there, there is an example a, of the majority kind of piling one prejudice upon another. I know, right, and pitting one group against another. Speaking of which, uh, on the night we're recording this, you're going to be appearing before a city council in a suburb of uh, Minneapolis, uh, which recently voted um, to uh, not follow the governor of Minnesota's mask mandate. And a part of the reason they voted that way was one city council member compared the loss of freedom uh, due to wearing masks to be equivalent to the loss of freedoms by those in uh, Japanese internment camps in the 1940s. Uh, what are you planning to say tonight in response to such a breathtaking uh, false equivalence? Right. I, mean, I don't even know where you'll start with that, but where are you going to start, Sally? No. Uh, so I am going to, you know, tell our story of what we all went through. And of course, I argue that there is absolutely no comparison. But I do sum it up by saying the difference is that when you say you are not going to wear a mask, you are making a personal choice for your own comfort and you know and that's totally the opposite of what the japanese americans did during world war ii in our case we obeyed the government's orders for the sake of the country you know and here you're making an individual choice that can affect your neighbor or your community your state you know uh, in this pandemic so you're you're doing it for selfish reasons where in our case we looked at the community as a whole and thought whatever was good for the community is what we should be doing yeah. Yeah. totally opposite way of thinking yeah. well that's really a remarkable insight that ultimately <laughs> uh you and what 160,000 120,000 who are in the camps I mean, ultimately left the camps and continued to be, you know, contributors to our society in so many and varied ways, which is a remarkable testimony to your grace and, and goodness in, mm. in spite of evil done to you. Um, how about, let's, let's end with your career as a, a teacher, both in Japan and then in the Minneapolis School District. Uh, you found yourself continually in schools with people from many backgrounds of many yeah. languages. Uh, tell us if you find some hope in that or, or how have you seen the human family live together successfully? Mm. Yes, well, actually, I think I, I see the most hope when I go out and give my talk to elementary school children because when they listen, they're, they're, you know, opening their mouths in astonishment that something like this could have happened to someone in America who was an American citizen. 
So they're, they're just aghast, you know, that yeah. uh, I, I had this experience. And so many of them come up to me afterwards and say, oh, I'm so sorry for what happened to you. That should have never happened, you know, and I'm glad to learn your story because, you know, I'll know then to watch to see when something being done to someone else is not right. Mm-hmm. And so I, that's where I get my encouragement is from uh, these kids that I give my talks to. In the beginning, it wasn't like that. When I first went out to give a talk, uh, I think it was a group of eighth graders. And I, get, I got a lot of, oh, that didn't happen in America. We never write about that in our history wow. books. You yeah. know? So they were doubting that it even happened. But now um, the kids, they're listening, you know, with all ears. And, and really, I just feel like this next generation, they don't see color the way our generation did. Uh, and I am especially, of course, fond of um, public school education because you have the mixture of people in your classroom. Uh, too often when you go to a private school, you're going to a school with people like you you know right and um, so i am hopeful for the future yeah well sally it uh it's just been wonderful to talk with you uh how about if i give you the last the last word on um what do you think would be most important for just some average people living in uh, a place, a sub- suburban Milwaukee, what would you most share with us? Well, I think the message I'd like to leave with you is that each one of you has the power to make a difference in this world. You know, sometimes you think, you know, what can I do? I'm only a single person. Uh, who's going to listen to me? But, you know, uh, you could always be aware of who's suffering from injustice and see what you can do to help right that wrong. Uh, You could write letters to the editor in the newspaper. You can let your voice be heard. I think that too often people are, um, you know, apt to just stand by and let it go go on. Uh, And if you do that, I think that you're helping to perpetrate that wrong. So I would just encourage people to um, speak up. Awesome. Help defend others. Absolutely. Uh, Both encouraging and challenging words, and I think that's exactly the the place we should leave it because there is both encouragement and I think great, great challenge, especially for us in the majority part of the the culture. Uh, Sally Sudo, we are so fortunate and blessed to have had you with us today as a part of Belief Beat. Uh, If you've been listening, thanks for being a part of this, and remember to check the links on our website to hear more of Sally's whole life history. Uh, This is Pastor John signing off and thanking everybody for being a part of Belief Beat uh, and Sally Sudo. Bye for now.